This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back to Master the MRCPCH. My name is Dr. Rian Thomas and I'm a Registrar in Clinical Genetics and the Digital Learning Education Fellow here at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. In this episode, we'll be speaking to the wonderful Dr. Keir Shields, a consultant in general paediatrics here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, and we'll be discussing the topic of failure to thrive. So this is a topic that spans lots of different sections of the theory curriculum, so please excuse me for not reading them all out but it covers points under general paediatrics, endocrine, and neonates, just to name a few. It could also pop up in your clinical exam in terms of a communication station, for example. So thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, Keir. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be here. So we're covering failure to thrive today, clearly an important clinical topic and something that does pop up in postgraduate examinations. What would you like people listening to learn from today's podcast? Yeah, it's a big topic and it's one that's really difficult to learn just in of itself. I think the thing that I would like people to learn most of all is an age-based approach to failure to thrive, that you've really got to look at a baby and a school-aged child and an adolescent quite differently through the prisms of, of failure to thrive. There are some overlap, there are some things that will be in all three sections, but actually that first sentence of the exam question that tells you what the age of the child is, that should be immediately filtering your approach to how to deal with a patient whose growth is faltering. That sounds absolutely perfect. So shall we think about the definition to start with? Yeah, and actually that is one of the hardest questions to answer because there, although we are taught a variety of things about failure to thrive, weight faltering is, is not in itself a, a diagnosis and it, it, there are various different normals that can be applied to different sorts of children. So I, I would say that the, the first thing about faltering growth is that for the majority of cases, you would describe it as a weight that is crossing more than two centile spaces on an appropriate growth chart. But even then there are exceptions. So if you are lurking around the second centile, you actually only have to drop to the point fourth in order to be failing to thrive. You've got to make sure that you're plotted on the correct growth chart. And there are lots of different growth charts for lots of different conditions, which, which we can talk about a little bit later. And also you've got to make sure that your growth is adjusted for your prematurity as well. So overall, I would say that it's that simple diagnosis is crossing centiles at a rate that is of concern, but we've really got to unpick what it is about a child in front of us that is making us worry that, that they're not growing properly. Great. So, so I think you've anticipated my next question. So really thinking about growth, it's clearly important to make sure that we're plotting a child's growth properly. Do you want, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And this is a, this is a, an area of medicine called auxology. So that's your word for the day, A-U-X-ology, which is the plotting and analysis of head circumference and 
arm span and height and weight and parental height and all the rest of it. And I think that this podcast is, is probably not long enough to go into all of the different elements of plotting growth, so like mid-parental height and final adult height and bone age and all of the rest of it. But the, the first and most important thing is to get the numbers correctly plotted on the correct chart. And it's very easy to, to get those charts wrong. So it, when I was writing my little pocket tutor textbook, which is available in all good bookshops and all bad bookshops as well. This was the thing that actually the publishers struggled with the most, just pl plotting dots on a graph and making sure the lines were in the right place. So this is, this is something that everybody finds hard, including the people who are actually producing the graphs in the, in the first place. It's worth remembering that the vast majority of chronic conditions will have their own particular growth chart. So we're used to sort of in exams, in membership, asking for our height and weight to be plotted on a Down syndrome growth chart, for example, but there's a cerebral palsy growth chart. And not a lot of people know that the, the weight of a child with significant cerebral palsy needs to be plotted on a separate chart. But you know, they, if they're non-ambulant, then they get osteopenic, they don't have the right muscle mass, and you've got to make sure that they are being compared against a sample population that is fair. So always make sure that you have requested a growth chart that is appropriate for the condition, gender, and age of the child in question. So Noonan syndrome, Turner syndrome, Down syndrome will all have their, their own separate growth charts. So always be vigilant that you're not worrying about a child who's on the 0.4 centile when they're actually on the 50th centile for their condition is is probably recommendation number one it's also really important to gauge an idea of what parents want out of growth so for example a baby is supposed to go from roughly three to four kilos at birth to about 10 kilos by the age of one and so that means putting on you know somewhere around you know five five hundred to seven hundred grams every month now once you get between the age of one and two, you're aiming to get from about 10 kilos to about 12 kilos. So your rate of growth goes down. And some parents can be really worried that their child is not putting on the same amount of weight and can come to you worried that they're, that they're not gaining that sort of 500 grams a month, but actually that would be a portal to obesity. So knowing what the concern of a parent is, is essential because you've got to follow those centile lines and having them plotted in the red book regularly measured by professionals is the best way of seeing how people are faltering or whether people are following the correct centiles. Great. So moving on to think about etiology, I know that different people have different systems for thinking about this. How do you go about thinking about the etiology in failure to thrive? My approach is really governed by the age of the child in front of me. And it's really important to know what normal is for that age. For example, there are growth spurts in puberty. There is an acceleration of growth in uh, the first few months of, of life. But knowing when weight is to be lost and when weight is to be slow is really important. So if you take, for example, a newborn baby, we should all be aware that a newborn baby will lose about 10% of its body weight in the first week. Now, that's like me losing eight kilos in a week. Now, 
that's not normal, but it is for babies because they've got a lot of meconium to lose. They're absolutely waterlogged and the water needs to, needs to all come out and they start burning their fat while their milk intake is increasing. So that is normal. And we expect them to regain their birth weight within another week. And so I would say that the first red flag to be waving is if a baby has lost more than 10% of its body weight, or if it has not regained its body weight by three weeks. So that's giving yourself a little bit of a little bit of leeway just for things to catch up with the slowed feeders and et cetera. But those are your first red flags. And those are very common presentations to the um, pediatric emergency department. Then how you approach those children is really dependent on history. So you've got your presentation, which is 10% weight loss or not recovering birth weight. And then it's history. It's about how well is the child feeding? How regularly is the child feeding? Are they waking up cranky all the time because not enough is getting in? Is mum aware of what her milk production is like? Is baby weeing? Is baby pooing? All of the really obvious stuff to look at whether a baby is dehydrated or not, adding in jaundice, which is probably going to be a topic for another podcast, but most jaundice will be, fed, will be dealt with by good quality feeding, let alone a little bit of phototherapy. So the problem is when do you worry and the, when you have got your red flags, you've then got to work out how you investigate to worry, to worry or not worry. And you would worry if the baby is vomiting a lot, you know, by the time you get to four weeks, you're starting to think of things like pyloric stenosis and so forth. But in the, uh, very early years, the most common things to look out for are, does the baby have a blockage somewhere? Is everything coming out instead of going in? Uh, is baby getting absolutely zero nutrition, either through uh, a difficulty in produ producing breast milk or neglect? Or is there an infection going on? And the most common one there is the one that's most easily overlooked, which is a urinary tra tract infection. So my, my tip for babies is never, ever, ever forget to do a urine dip and a blood gas because it might just be the life-saving intervention that you need. It is one of those ones that, that gets overlooked because of the practical difficulty, but they need not have fevers and they need not be septic. So it's, it's an important, important one that, and then I guess congenital thyroid disease is, is important to bear in mind, but you know, that should have been picked up on the Guthrie card. And that is a perfect example of where what you see in an exam and what you see in clinical practice is actually slightly different, but it's very, very rare now for thyroid panel to be the correct answer in practice, whereas it still crops up in, you know, in exams. Great. So we, we've talked about the kind of baby neonate um, presentations. What about causes in an older child? So when we're looking at toddlers and slightly older children, we have got a slightly different profile of, of child. We've got a child who's got a wider variety of different things that they're eating, not just milk. And we've got a child who could lose weight through vomiting and diarrhea quite, quite quickly. But so you've got to divorce your acute causes of sudden weight loss from your failure to thrive, which is usually still growing but not as quickly as they should at crossing centiles. So we start to be more in the realms of, is there a chronic disease going on here? 
Now you can look at bowel habit, but toddler diarrhea generally doesn't present with weight loss or failure to thrive. So you can have quite profuse, smelly, food-ridden diarrhea in children and, and it's actually fine. But if they've got change in their bowel habit, either more constipation or blood in their stool or uh, diarrhea, it's worth really thinking about not just thyroid, but also celiac disease, for example. Of course, in older children, school-aged children, you've got to be quite cognizant of inflammatory bowel disease with these symptoms as well. So in almost any age group, you can have hyperthyroidism, you can have celiac disease. In younger children, you should be thinking of toddler diarrhea, but in any school-aged child, you are then starting to think more about inflammatory bowel disease and and also a variety of allergies now obviously if you've got those symptoms in a in a baby then you're looking at cow's milk allergy and that's a sign of it that's a, a cause of constipation of diarrhea of blood in the stool of failure to thrive but of course it's more difficult with with allergies with with older children but generally there is a history of i had this food and then everything all went to pot so it's it's worth taking that that history very very clearly, but is there pallor? Is there abdominal bloating? And you've also got to be very well aware of malignancies in this group. They're rare, but they are important, and you can't afford to miss a Wilms tumor, a leukemia, a neuroblastoma. These can present in babies as well, and I've seen six week olds with you know congenital cancers. But growth faltering, you really need to make sure that you've got a full blood count, a blood film, a celiac test, and a thyroid test at bare minimum in this age group. Great. And, and I'm interested, you talked about kind of teenagers as well. I, I haven't really thought about the adolescent age group in failure to thrive. What kind of things do you think about with, with that kind of older group? The adolescent age group is overlooked in almost every area of paediatric medicine. And I think that the, the adolescent age group comes with two specific barriers. The first is that their normal growth pattern is so unpredictable. And so they will enter puberty and their growth spurts at different times. Growth velocity increases significantly in girls before it does in boys. You can have people who are, have got significant height differences in the same class, one of whom is catching up with the other, but the other is, 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 is still growing a little bit. And so you get a lot of concern from parents actually about height rather than about weight and about whether the velocity of growth is, is significant. So you can investigate growth velocity separately and obviously you're looking for things like turner syndrome and newness syndrome that's been 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 missed you're wanting to get a bone age from a, a a wrist x-ray because if a 14 year old has got a bone age of a 12 year old that's actually reassuring that means that they've got a lot more growth potential and really we shouldn't be talking about bone age we should be talking about growth potential so that's a, a little nugget for clinical practice but then you've got the added problem of, of weight loss and weight loss in teenagers is really tricky because there will be some children who are deliberately trying to lose weight for reasonable reasons. There will be some who have got significant eating disorders, which needs to be identified. And there will be some who have developed malignancies. And of course, if you're not eating, then 
your iron intake goes down, your vitamin D intake goes down. So you end up with a lot of aches and pains and funny tastes in your mouths and not wanting to eat. And so in a lot of these children, it's really important to do a basic full blood count, vitamin D and bone profile, just to make sure that they're not osteopenic, developing rickets and that a few vitamin supplements aren't, aren't going to perk them up. This is a particular problem in the autistic community where fussy eating actually becomes part of their, their sort of neurodivergent expression. And so picking apart the reason for poor intake is really important because there may be something underlying it that can be understood rather than somebody being difficult. I should say that I have almost deliberately sidestepped the issue of talking too much about the multifactorial nature of weight loss in adolescence. As everybody will know, there are issues around body image, eating disorders, substance misuse, excessive exercise, all of that sort of stuff. But I know that you have got a CAM psychiatrist coming along a bit later to do another one of these podcasts on anorexia nervosa, eating disorders and other behaviours. I'm sure that he or she will touch on the way that societal pressures affect adolescents. And so I've sort of sidestepped that issue because I know it's going to be the topic of another podcast. It's really interesting and important things that, as you said, can sometimes be overlooked. So I think a lot of the kind of revision textbooks categorise causes of failure to thrive about input and output of calories. Do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, failure, failure to thrive and you know, growth faltering is, is, in a sense, very easy to understand. It's just that more energy is being used than should be compared to what's going in. That's it. You know, either intake is insufficient or energy use is too high and energy use can be, um, can be too high for, for a variety of reasons. The, the obvious big print topics that you would learn at in medical school would be things like, uh, cystic fibrosis, for example, where you're fighting off a lot of infections at the same time as not being able to get the nutritional content of your food digested because of pancreatic insufficiency. So in cystic fibrosis, you've got both. And that's why a lot of children with CF need additional calorie support on top of their pancreatic enzymes, their creon. But it's really important to, if you've got a child who has been failing to thrive pretty much all of their life, to screen them for immune problems, to make sure that they're not the subject of chronic infections. Do they have, you know, one of these rare things like skid or chronic granulomatous disease, if they've presented with multiple unusual infections in the past. So using up your calories can be because of infection. It can also be because of metabolic drives being in the wrong direction. I mean, we all know that diabetes presents with significant weight loss. That's because you're, you're burning all of your fat. You can't use your, your sugar, you're peeing that out. And so there are, there are clinical causes of burning too many calories, but there are also just lifestyle reasons for burning too many calories. And we all know that an Olympic standard athlete will get through 6,000 calories a day and burn all of that off. So you've got to weigh up what the activity level is of a child as well as what's, what's going in. And if they're more active suddenly, then they 
may need extra calories. And we see that in children who have just learned to walk and children who have just learned to run and children who hit developmental milestones and then start burning off a little bit of weight. So sometimes it can be normal just to lose a little bit or to flatline a little bit at important moments of development. And then the final thing about calorie intake would be at about four to six months when children start weaning. So babies suddenly start taking in solid food and there's much less room for milk and you want to sort of start reducing their milk intake. And so they'd have a little bit of a, a weight wobble around about that time. And so it's, it's really important when you are taking a history to find out at what stage the baby or the child is at when it comes to feeding and what nutrition is getting in and why. And I guess another important aspect of the history that we should mention is really the social history and making sure that you get a really comprehensive view of, of what's happening at home. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, non-accidental injury, factitious and induced illness, neglect can all present with restricted growth. And the very, very, very extreme. You know, we do sometimes see children who have ended up having pegs inserted just because, you know, they, we feel that they need more nutrition, but actually they're the victim of induced illness. That is very, very rare. So what, what I would say is that safeguarding is, is one of the primary roles of a pediatrician and it can present as, as, as weight loss and failure to thrive. Absolutely. So we've talked about the clinical features as, as we've kind of gone through the, the different causes for failure to thrive, but are there any additional clinical features that people should be aware of? Yeah. So, you know, you've got, you've got this symptom and failure to thrive or growth faltering is no different from cough or wheeze or sore leg. It's just a presenting symptom. And just like with a cough, you're going to react very differently if they've got, you know, blurry red eyes and wheeze in the hay fever season than you are if they've got temperature and florid lymphadenopathy. Failure to thrive is approached differently according to the various symptoms and signs that occur with it. So if the child is very pale, if the child has got an altered bowel habit, if the child is lethargic or sleepy or tired all the time, if the child has got bulging eyes and is having panic attacks, these all throw you in a completely different direction. And, you know, the weight loss from hyperthyroidism or DKA is going to look very different from the weight loss from leukemia. And this is one of the problem with written exam questions that they have to convey all of that while still making sure that their distractor answers are still plausible. So, you know, they, they may show you a 13 year old who is, is agitated with palpitations and weight loss, but they will need then as well as hyperthyroidism to have four other things that it could be. And then you start running out of things once you've got past anorexia and DKA. So one of, one of the things that I like recommending to, to junior doctors and to students is to try writing some exam questions. Try and take failure to thrive and go, right, I've got a three-year-old with celiac disease. How am I going to write an exam question that's got five distractors where all of them are plausible, but there's definitely a right answer. And you'll see how challenging it is. So 
I guess the, the big distractors or clinical points to remember is that anemia, which can present in leukemia and celiac and all the rest of it, can be accompanied by a flow murmur, a heart murmur. So don't necessarily think that just because there's a heart murmur, you've got clear heart failure here, which is another thing we haven't actually talked about that's on the differential. Just because they've got recurrent chest infections, don't go down the CF immunology route immediately. Remember that when a child has been treated for recurrent chest infections, they might've had recurrent chest infections, or every time a GP's put a stethoscope on them, they're a bit crackly. That could be heart failure. They might never have had a chest infection, but just been treated for one. So just be aware of what these phrases actually mean and try and piece together what the exam question is giving you in terms of overt signs, clinical history, and try and piece it together into a most likely answer. I think that's very, very valuable advice. Thank you, Kia. So to kind of finish off, the investigations and management are obviously closely associated with the cause and what you get out of your history and your examination. Is there anything that you want to mention about investigations and management that might be helpful for people doing their exams? So I think the, the key thing with investigation and, and management is firstly, it's to triage your investigations into different sections according to age. So we've talked about the real importance of a urine dip, for example, and a blood gas in a, in a baby, as well as a jaundice check, perhaps a thyroid function. Only add to that battery of, of investigations if you've got symptoms that you're seeing. So if there's blood in the stool, then yes, you will want to make sure that the child doesn't have a cow's milk protein allergy, but that will also usually be associated with the resistance of feeding as well. So have a little battery of tests for a particular age group and then add onto it accordingly. In older children, make sure that you're screening uh, for cancers and make sure that you are adding things in according to whether the child is pale, whether the child is bloated, whether the child has feeding difficulties, constipation, etc. And in the older child, remember that the key investigation is actually the HEADS assessment, which feels like a history, but actually it's an investigation. It is a very targeted, focused assessment of a lot of things that can be going on in the life of an adolescent. And that is just as much part of your uh, examination as an abdominal exam is or anything like that. A wise psychiatrist once said to me, if one of my patients has got abdominal pain, a surgeon will expect me to place a hand on a tummy and tell him where it is tender before accepting the referral. And it is interesting that the majority of healthcare practitioners do not treat the mental state examination with the same level of reverence that they do the abdominal or the neurological. And I think that that's really important. We should be able to ring CAMS up and actually give them a decent uh, psychiatric assessment, just as we would a decent abdominal or neurological one. While we're talking about investigations, it is really worth reflecting on the difference between the next investigation and the gold standard investigation. And the difference between those two is probably the reason why I had to sit what used to be called part two written five times before I passed it. You will very often be given a case where, for example, there is a 13 year old girl who presents tired all the time with some weight loss and 
pallor, reduced appetite, and some unexplained bruises, and they and, and you know multiple infections. They will basically be trying to give you the idea that this could be a leukemia, and they'll give you some basic bloods. Let's say uh, a full blood count. Uh, a CRP, some renal blood, some liver, and some clotting, and something that just rules out a, a, another cause. So they may, you know, give you a, a normal ECG and a normal urine dip with no sugar in, or something like that. And then the question will either be, what is your next test? The correct answer of which is blood film, or it may be, what is the gold standard test that will elucidate the diagnosis? And the answer to that is trephine bone marrow bi biopsy. And both of them will be in the, in the answers. And it took me ages to realize that the next test is a question about practically what would you do in that situation? And the gold standard test is how well do you understand this condition and how it is diagnosed? And it is really important to understand word for word what the question is asking and answer that question, not the question that you impulsively think is the question that should be being asked. And I think that is my biggest recommendation for investigations in written exams is to work out exactly what you are being asked and answer that, not what would you do next. Thank you so much for that, Kia. Truly a fantastic run through of failure to thrive. Before we let you go, I'm just going to ask you our final quick fire questions that we ask everybody. So in your experience, are there any classic exam questions or recurrent themes that pop up about failure to thrive in the written or clinical exams? So uh, classic exam questions in the written exam will be a uh, baby with weight loss or not putting weight on. And the key thing is to work out, is it nutritional or is it sickness? You're going to get that from assorted other, other symptoms or whether the presentation is reassuring. Just because it's reassuring and nutritional doesn't mean a baby doesn't need to come into hospital mind. If they've got 15% weight loss, bring them in and observe their feeding. Observation is an investigation. In older children, you're going to be picking apart what the cause is of growth failure. Is it a syndrome? Is it uh, a problem with intake? Is it a problem with absorption? Is it a problem with calorie expenditure? Or is it all three? And then in the older children, you're going to be picking out whether there is a pubertal problem, whether there is a mental health problem, and really using the investigations to rule stuff out like diabetes and leukemia and so forth before honing in on your diagnosis. In the clinical exam, you're more likely to be examining a child who's got some sort of biological cause of growth failure. So know your syndromes, know your achondroplasias, hypochondroplasias, Russell Silver, Noonan's, Turner's, Down's. Know that you need to plot all of these on an appropriate growth chart including common things like cerebral palsy. And the final uh, bit of information is even in stations where you're not really examining growth, have an idea about whether the child in front of you is a normal height and weight for their age or not. You should know what an eight-year-old looks like. And if you're in an abdominal station, and you've got an eight-year-old who's about the size of a five-year-old and has had multiple abdominal surgeries. Just bear in mind, they may have been born premature, have short gut syndrome, not have received 
uh, a lot of uh, calorie intake in the past. So always have an idea of whether failure to thrive is playing into your respiratory, your cardiac and your abdominal stations. Don't just wait for it to come up on its own. Great advice. And so the second one, are there any useful resources that you'd recommend checking out? Yeah. So the first resource that I would recommend is a bit selfish of me. I've written a textbook. It's the Pocket Tutor Clinical Examination, a Pediatric Clinical Examination by JP Medical. One of the chapters that we inserted into this second edition was about growth and puberty and failure to thrive and how that interplays with nutrition. So it's got a good step-by-step -step guide to all of the different presentations at all of the different ages and how to conduct a clinical examination. I would say that there are some good clinical guidelines out there. My go-to place is usually Sheffield Children's Hospital, which has got a good set of publicly available guidelines. Great. And what are your three takeaway learning points from this Three takeaway learning points are different ages present with different things differently. Read the exam questions to know the specific thing that they are asking you to answer. There may be multiple correct answers, but the clue is buried there in the question and answer that appropriately. And in the real world, make sure that everything is, is documented appropriately on the correct growth chart and that your history is as broad as possible, including nutrition, diet, bowel habit mental health and social circumstance because the clue is very often in there and not in the blood tests perfect thank you so much for coming on the podcast today Keir that was brilliant I really appreciate your time thank you thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH if you want to get in touch you can do so via social media you can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter Instagram and LinkedIn if you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search GOSH Pods wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Bye.